Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive, or if you think like one, and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Medcalf, founder of X-Quadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve extraordinary results. And no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Today, I speak with Julian Dixon. Julian is the CEO and the founder of a fintech, uh, regtech business called Napier that addresses one of the biggest criminal activities in the world, really that of money laundering. Uh, and Julian is really passionate about the subject as we'll come across. And what we do is we dive into the journey over the last five years. He's built the business from four men in a in a small office in central London to a 200-person organization that's growing incredibly fast, serving uh, 200 uh, or more customers around the world, uh, some of the top banks in the world, addressing this really important problem. And in the conversation, we dive into a few things. We really look at some of the inner story. It looks great on the inside, on the outside, but on the inside, there can be challenges, right, of founding a business. There's the tenacity that you need. There's the times you've got to get up and go at it again and again until you succeed. The need to build a flywheel that's powerful and drives the business forward. And so Julian's really open about how it's not always been an easy journey, even building what's actually a very successful business and the times when he's doubted himself, questioned himself and had to keep going. So there's a great message in here about tenacity. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Julian Dixon of Napier. Julian, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Pleased to meet you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good, thank you. And I'm really pleased that uh, you're here because uh, Napier seems a really interesting company. You founded it like five or six years ago and you've had really great growth. So before we go any further and dive into your learning curve as CEO over the last few years, perhaps just give us a quick intro of um, why did you start this business and, and what is the business that you've built? Sure. And I, I assume, Richard, you call it Napier because you live in Paris, because that's the French way of saying it. If you're, Bien sûr. This is yeah, what yeah. I say. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Napier to you, Napier to us. but Napier, OK. Yeah, you're, we're very happy for it to call, be called Napier. So, um, OK. Yeah. So, so Napier, um, it's, it's an interesting story, um, was founded in 2015, as you say. Um, Napier is a, a, a software solution for anti-money laundering, which is actually... You see quite a lot of anti-money laundering stories or money laundering stories in the press, in the news, mm. scandalous things. And actually, it's a it's a subject that um, we should all be concerned about. And if we're not concerned about it, we should be because it affects every single person on the planet. And that is the idea that the the proceeds of criminal intent and actions are are siphoned off from uh, from you know whatever illegal activity it is and put in. To the legal system so this is low level crime or high level crime like um uh, you know gun running drug trafficking people mm -hmm. trafficking and ultimately terrorism so all of the terrible stories we've heard you know around the world of terrorist organizations doing their awful things they have to get their money 
through channels somewhere, and that right. is all done through money laundering. So what Napier does, it's it's uh, installed in financial institutions, and it is there to detect and help find money laundering within the system. Um, yeah, so that that's that's what it's for. Got it. Okay, well, I'm going to do my best to... Um, be properly British and call it Napier uh, and not Napier. Uh, I, quite, I quite like Napier, actually. <laughs> I, I, I might start calling that myself. Well, but. I'll tell you what, actually, interesting. Yeah, I have a, um, you know, the software, there's a software called Zapier or Zapier. And yeah. um, because they have things called Zaps, apparently it's Zapier. So yeah. there we go. That's why I was getting confused. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what are the difference? And it sounds totally yeah. different. So, okay. So, yeah, so you, you you're performing a important role here, right? Because as you said, it is a social, it's a social impact to to money laundering, and you Absolutely. are there to kind of stop it. And so, what got you interested? I mean, it's in some ways it's a little bit exotic, right? A little bit arcane for somebody to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to build a anti money laundering system for the world's top banks. So. What made you get out of bed one morning with that sure. as your your goal in life? Sure. It's, it's, it's the stars aligning, actually. Um, I, I, my background is as a banker. I've got 20 plus years mm-hmm. in the banking world. And, um, you know, I, 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 in my career, I've done, I've done many things, all the way from front office to, to back office or, or vice versa, I should say. And, um, and really, I found myself um, in, uh, you know, 2013, 2014, working on projects with companies in the money laundering space. And, you know, I'd always been a consumer of money laundering software or policies and procedures within banks. And actually to be on the sharp end of a software provider, looking at the analytics, looking at the details of what was going on under the covers Mm. was a bit of a revelation. And actually what I could see was that the software systems that were available in 2013 really were failing everybody. They were failing the banks. They were failing the public. Um, the only people they were really serving were the criminals. And the reason being is that, that you know, software such as anti-money laundering software was seen at that time very much as a cost burden on the organisation hmm. as opposed to a, a mandatory defence. Now, I think that's changed a lot. And the levels of... Um, compliance regulation go up year on year. And well, tell me about it. Every time my bank contacts me, it's because yeah. of compliance. They never ask me anything about my, how they could help me. It's just no, what papers no. they want it, me to fill in. And it can be burdensome, right? But I mean, it goes up year on year and the software systems that they have were a little bit um, archaic, not adaptable, and certainly yeah. not good for future looking the way the world was changing. So, I saw an opportunity there to do something and decided to set up uh, a company that that could actually help that by using really smart modern technology, obviously incorporating what we now know as AI and machine learning and have a really forward looking company that has adaptable software that can scale from near, near zero to infinity. I mean, the idea being there, Richard, that, you know, that the big, big banks in the world can basically demand bespoke systems, yeah. but the very small companies are kind of left and left to deal with a lot of this, this, these problems themselves, or by getting software packages that are too expensive. And it was really to give the little guys access to top quality product, as well as the big guys having access to it. So it's democratizing the use of top quality technology because 
you know, in the world of money laundering, you know, if, if a big bank's safe and a little bank isn't, the money launderers still win, right? We've got to get, we, we've got to get the good guys winning a lot more often. And, and just for everybody listening, um, the, the statistics on money laundering are pretty horrific, actually. It's estimated more than $2 trillion of illicit money goes into the system every year. That is enormous. Mm-hmm. And the amount of prosecutions that occur are, and, and, and the you know, repatriating of the money is somewhat under 2%. So it's something that um, a lot of work needs to go into. It's something that, you know, we're part of that story. We're not the only part of that story, but it's something that everybody should be aware of. And actually it's the responsibility of everybody. It's the banks, it's the software vendors, it's the regulators, it's the Mm -hmm. enforcement agencies, it's the politicians. Everybody needs to get behind this because it's, it's a pretty horrific and endemic problem. Got it. Got it. So, so you, you saw this as a, as a, as a need and, and you jumped in and started to build an APIA. And where are you now, right? Six years later, what, just give us a little bit of sense of, you know, the progress that you've, you've made. Sure. So um, six years ago, we sat in an attic in, uh, in a, an attic room in, in uh, Smithfield market, actually, if anyone knows that. In central London, it's above the meat market. So it's very much four guys sitting in a room coming up with ideas. And, you know, you fast forward six years later, we're we're somewhat around 200 people globally. We have offices in the US, um, uh, Australia. And in between that, we've got Singapore, Malaysia, obviously the UK. We're in Dubai um, and um, Taiwan as well. So we've got a global footprint and a global presence. We've got uh, a, a lot of staff to support that effort and that really is as a result of the um, explosive growth we've seen particularly over the last two years you know when you when you run a startup and a, and a, a fintech or what we call reg tech in this particular case you know it, it, it tends to be the first few years are very very slow yeah often somewhat depressing if you're staked everything on doing it but as you get success success begets more success and you build a reputation um, and and things can proceed quite quickly after that. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the industry we're in, which is a trust industry, you know, we are dealing from the very biggest banks in the world to some of the very smallest financial institutions. And our clients, quite rightly, have to trust us because the software we are using is, you know, it's serious software for a serious purpose. And actually, if they get it wrong, the consequences for them as an organization can be pretty bad. You know, they can get fines, they get reputational damage, and even, you know, the people responsible can end up with custodial sentences if they get it that badly wrong. So it's pretty serious stuff. So as an organization, you know, we have to have that trust of our customers. And, you know, thankfully we do. And um, we try not to um, let them down or abuse that. And we tried very, very hard to maintain that amazing relationship we have with them. Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, success begets success. And once you get that flywheel going, it can take a while, right? But then that starts to create all sorts of opportunities. Yes. And it also gives us as a company, um, the opportunity to invest even more into the technology and get more involved in actually Mm. helping the root causes of the problem. So I think it's, it's a win-win for everybody really, you know, as we become, bigger and more recognized and more successful because you know we're not out there 
coming up with ideas of how we should stop money laundering because we're, we're just the guys who build the software. We need to have that dialogue with the regulators. We need to have that dialogue with our customers um, to ensure that, you know, what they're yeah. seeing, these are the guys on the front line, what they're seeing, we're able to respond within our, you know, in our product to come up with solutions to yeah. actually help them. They're the guys on the front line. So it's, it's about them and what they're doing and how we can help them. Obviously, as I said, with the regulators, they have to follow a regulatory regime. So we have to ensure that they are compliant. But, mm. you know, just being compliant doesn't catch the bad guys. Right. So you've got to be compliant and you've got to catch the bad guys. Mm. Yeah, got it. So obviously in the business, you wear two hats, right? You are you wear the founder hat and you also wear the CEO hat. Yes. Um Let's just perhaps focus in on the CEO part, although in some sense, I know they're going to be intertwined, right? It's going to be your position. But um, in a sense, I think it was your first CEO role, right? Up to then, you had a number of senior roles in, in other, you know, in banks and other institutions, as you said. Um, looking back, what were some of the biggest surprises that you've discovered about being CEO? Well, that's that's quite a big question. And there's been in the six year journey, there's been many, many surprises. But I guess, you know, I think I think perhaps the biggest surprise is how difficult it is to set a company up from nothing and and garner success. I didn't I didn't think it would be quite that difficult. And I think if you talk to any CEO that set up a, a new tech company, we all have the same wounds and scars and war stories. But in reality, I think, you know, you can say that if if you'd have known how very difficult it would be at the beginning, you might not start. So it's perhaps mm. good that you don't know that. Um, yeah, it's like, but, um, it's like parenthood or marriage <laughs> or yes. yeah, a lot of these things, yeah. right? No, no, it is. But, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a worthwhile journey and exactly. having the tenacity to carry on sometimes when you know you're in the depth of despair but there's also these huge high points and these huge you know elation when you are successful when you know your ideas are proven in the real world commercially because that's the best way that people can verify and ratify what you're doing is what we want and we see the way you look at the world as napier is the way that we think the world should be looked at in this case. And, and therefore we, you know, we are going to subscribe and buy your products and that, that gives you huge satisfaction, you know, so, and everything in between, you know, you obviously, when you're growing, you have to, you have to have the problems of raising finance for the company, which can be troublesome and tricky. And I have to just tip my cap to our, to our backers, which is my board who've been amazing to me. They've let me get on with things and run them, you know, mostly how I see correctly. And they've always been there for guidance for me. So having amazing backers is one of the lessons that um, I didn't have to learn because I, I had that from the beginning and I'm very, very lucky. And then, you know, all that journey with hiring large amounts of people, you know, you, we've got amazing team at Napier, um, but, you know, not everyone's everyone can fit in the company. And then you've got all those those people journeys as well. And then uh-huh. setting up the, the culture of the company, and the way that you think it should represent itself internally and the way that reflects externally, you know, and it's all, there's so many different things to think about as a CEO. When I was in banking, you know, my discipline was, you know, one or two things, but as a CEO of a small company, you have to be involved in marketing, uh, designing of products, 
uh, um, you know, selling, yeah. uh, HR, finance, everything. So you wear many, many hats. And I know that's not unique, but those would be some of the surprises uh, uh, that, that you get when you start a company like that for me. Yeah. And, and as you look back over that, obviously you're building a successful business. Um, you know, what have you, yeah, what have you found you've done really well? Like, you know, where did you, as, a, as the CEO, you know, looking back, do you go, that's the thing that, you know, that really made a difference in the company's growth. You know, my decision to do this or the way that I do that was actually a real strength for the business. So, so I mean, I would say the, the things that I've done really well is get lucky at the right time, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. But you have to be there to, to get lucky. Mm. So, you know, the decisions around, you know, the team that um, we started the, the company with, the, the first Napierians, or in your language, Napierians, I suppose. <laughs> you know, they're, they're an amazing bunch of people. They're all with us today in the company they're doing different roles doing different things but everyone is still there so having that culture that 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 you start with doing that that was an amazing thing to, to be able to work with those people um and then you know getting particular um clients at the right time has obviously been uh, great for us and you, you know you can look back on that and go luck hard work you know i think it's probably a little bit of both because you know going back you know it, in this in this industry, it's all about provenance. So you have to have provenance to sell to the next client. But of course, when you start on day one, you don't you don't have a single client. So you have to get people to believe in you. And the people that backed us in the early days, you know, you could say that's a great decision by me. But luck, really, it's luck that they that they bought into our story, and um, we were able to get them to come on that that journey with us. Well, it's to slow you down a bit. It's not it's not really luck, right? Because they saw they saw you and how you turned up and whatever it was your commitment your vision yeah your character whoever whatever it is right I mean it wasn't they didn't just roll a dice at this no point. no 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 it's not look you know it's I, I I'm I'm perhaps conflating luck and opportunity um, and uh, a lot I like to think that you know they always say don't they rather be a rather be a lucky general than a good general so <laughs> you know and I think I think luck luck does play a part in it but mm. i i do think that you know you do put yourself in a position to get lucky so mm. you know that first big client is it lucky is it hard work it's a great opportunity um and i think it's elements of both but you have to be on the pitch ready to score the goal in order to get the lucky pass to put it in the yeah net. and you and you often have to you know, you often have to ask before you will receive, right? I mean, if you don't Absolutely. ask, you're probably not going to receive. Yeah, and actually, you know, to counter that, the, the, the thing I would say is you've got to be in that position 50 times before the one yeah. gets, gets there. And everyone goes, ah, lucky. Well, there were 49 failed times, right? So, yes, you're right. It's it's being in the right place, doing the right things consistently, uh, uh, and then you get the opportunities. It's Richard here with a quick interlude. As part of my coaching and advisory work, I often work with leaders who have recently taken on the CEO role. It's a big leap from the comfort zone of functional leadership or business unit management. And it opens up a whole new set of stakeholders, pressures, decisions, and responsibilities. I found that there are three key things that will make a huge difference in those first quarters. Number one, 
balancing the operational and the strategic, what I call CEO focus. Number two, establishing credibility, what I call CEO presence. And number three, managing stakeholders, those CEO conversations. I've written a short email series that goes into more detail on the transition to CEO and how you can practically sharpen your CEO focus, solidify your CEO presence and master your CEO conversations. It's insightful and it's entirely free of charge and you can register for it by going to xquadrant.com forward slash go forward slash curve. Now, back to the conversation. So tell me about this. So how did you do that? I mean, I totally agree, but I think I see it a lot in people. You know, that is hard, right? Taking 50, you know, 49 inverted commas failures or inverted commas rejections, whatever you want to call them. That can take it, that can knock it out of people, right? So how did, you know, what was your perspective on that as you were going through and having the meetings and meetings and meeting people and it wasn't getting traction? How did you experience that? It's really, really tough, but... You know, just going back, an amazing team, a belief in what we were doing, a strategy that we thought that would win the day. And in the 49 meetings we went to, you know, we might have had one where they go, you guys are completely off your rocker. But 48 was saying, look, we can see what you're doing. We think it's amazing. You know, come back to us in six months, 12 months when you're a little bit further down the line. So we knew that we were on the right track. And you just have to have that huge self-belief you have to have the tenacity to keep going and you've really got to want it right you've really got to want that success and just going back to what I said at the beginning that you know where we were at the very beginning is we were competing in a market where it was dominated by software providers that we thought weren't giving what society needed and you've got to have that belief that you're doing something really cool and innovative that's going to help everybody um in order to carry on at least it's yeah. like that for me yeah yeah i think that's right i mean i think um the thing that gets us out of the comfort zone and the defensiveness zone and everything is service i think it's you know when you believe you're actually going to do something that makes a difference yeah yes um then you can kind of take some of the knocks a little bit more yes yeah and don't don't get me wrong um Richard, there's there's many, many, many times where you lie awake at night thinking, oh, my God, you know, how am I going to face tomorrow or how am I going to face next week? But, you know, those are the knocks that you take and you get up and you brush yourself down and yeah. you get on with it. Right. And and then you get to a point where it's not just about you and your ambitions. You've got a team behind you and you're carrying, you know, the, the goals and aspirations of a whole team. And, you know, you've got to as a team, solve those problems and break those barriers down one by one. And actually, that hasn't changed from a small company to a big company. If you want to be successful, you have to get the whole team believing and driving in the same direction. And actually, that becomes harder as you get bigger, right? Because you've got a bigger team to manage and, you know, get everyone thinking the same way. So it's something that we're constantly doing. We're constantly evolving at. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure we've got it 100% right, but we are constantly working at it to get everybody pulling together in the same direction. If I was to ask somebody on your team what your greatest gift is as a CEO, what would they say? Wow, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, I think, Richard. Um, 
I can tell you what... Um, what would you like them to say? Well, what I'd like them to say is very tall and thin, um, which actually <laughs> is completely the opposite of what I am. Um, <laughs> no, I'd like, I'd, like, I'd like to hear stuff around that. Um, I, I empower them to do the job that they were hired for. Um, you know, so we think that we hire really good people, experts in their field, uh, or people who are moving into that range, you know, i.e. they're mm. learning to become experts in their field. And I think my job really is to break down the, the blockers and barriers that every single one of our staff members have so that they can perform at their maximum. And, you know, everyone goes, oh, that's great because you know that's really good. But that's good for me and it's good for the company, right? If everyone can do their job to the maximum, you know, we've got a pretty awesome company, right? And, yeah. and that's what I spend all my days doing really is ensuring that everyone else can do their job as well as they possibly can. And what, if, and what have you learned about that, Julian? What have you learned about empowering people in this journey? You know, what, perhaps, you know, how, how's your style changed perhaps, you know, from even two or three years ago on that? So I think, well, I think actually, you know, in, in my banking career, um, you know, I said I had 20 year banking career, the back end of that career, I, I had, you know, management roles and really, it was again it was all about empowering people to do their job so the facilitator you know and mm. i think being a ceo you have much more responsibility over m- many more areas um but essentially it's the same thing and i think a good manager uh, a ceo or just mm. a manager whatever it is about you know empowering the staff being the best out in them enabling them to do the job but you've got to contain that within the vision and the goal of the company right so it's no good me making the guy who's supposed to be, you know, building the product, make him really good at, you know, selling, right? I mean, he needs to be good at building the product so they can't go off piece, but it's keeping everyone containerized mm. within that vision and that goal and, 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 and everyone, you know, pulling in the same direction, but enabling them to perform as best as they can. And I think, you know, um, you, you ask what's changed or what's got different. I think that's what I've, always tried to do i think um as you get bigger as i said it gets more complex but actually as as the ceo i'm the ultimate person responsible for that i'm the arbiter of that so um you know i can i can uh enforce it although i don't obviously don't enforce it but you know you can make it you can make it a reflection of yourself and i hope that's what i try and do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I guess I'm kind of wondering what the, you know, the, the flip side is in the sense of like, where's there been a trap or a trap or pitfall along the way about how you've, um, you know, about the CEO role, uh, something where looking back, you go, actually, you know, when I started off, I was trying to do it like this and I realized that didn't work and I changed course. And that's <coughs> a lot better. Is there something that comes to mind, like a, a course correction that you might have made in your own style as CEO? So I think, you know, I think there are many points in which you pivot during that that journey, um, mm. whether it be, you know, the way that you're marketing or selling or the product or there's many pivots. There's nothing, there's no huge pivot where we've gone, we've had an epiphany moment, we've gone, oh my God, we've been looking at all of this completely incorrectly and we're going to change direction and go another way. It's more been correction of the steering as it yeah and i suppose i'm not talking so much about the business strategy or the product market fit or any of these things right but almost like how have you you know how you've kind of seen the ceo role right or the way that you know the focus that you've been putting on things or 
the way that you've made decisions or any of these kind of things and how you've actually operated with the CEO hat. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and I think that actually changes with the scale of the company as well. So yeah. when there's four of us sitting in an attic, it's all very collegiate and, you know, beers at the end of the evening and uh, arms around the shoulder. And when you're 200 people on a, on a globally spread mm. business in a pandemic, you know, <laughs> in a pandemic, then the way that you manage and talk and, and um, you know, uh, lead people is is very, very different. And you have to adjust your style for that. But I think I'm quite lucky in that my career, you know, I've worked all the way from very junior positions to quite senior positions. And I've had the exposure to both small and big teams, to global and local teams, to everything in between. So I always felt that I was reasonably equipped to have uh, you know, going from very small to very big, because I've had that experience. And where I where I have, you know, faltered in my own mind, I've always had um, really good uh, mentors and advisors around me, which have sat on the board, and that's been invaluable to me. And, yeah. you know, I would, I would say that that, if anyone there is sitting and thinking of setting their own company up, you do need that people, that people around you. Call it your family, if you want, who that you can trust to and get advice, and they will tell you, when you're being a bit of an idiot and they will also tell you when you're right. So yeah. you definitely need that sounding board. And that's something that I've always relied on. Yeah. Lovely. So where do you go from here as a business? Like if we were having this conversation in a couple of years, what would you love to be telling me? Well, I'd love to be, I'd love to be telling you that we are the number one um, software provider of anti-money laundering systems in the world. I would love to tell you that we're in a, the, the top 50 biggest banks in the world and I'd love to be able to tell you that we're working hand in hand with the regulator to ensure that the software that we build in conjunction with, you know, deploying it to banks is making a huge difference to the fight in financial crime. I would love I would love all of those things to happen. You know, I'd love the success and I'd love the fact that, you know, success for me isn't just commercial on behalf of Napier. It's actually just going back to what we're trying to do. We're trying to find money laundering within the system and therefore prosecute it and shut it down so i think it would be great if we could take that you know i talked about two percent uh, repatriation of monies it'd be great it'd be great if we could even take it to three percent wouldn't it mm-hmm. because that would be a 50 percent increase but you know getting to 10 percent would be a great goal you know over the next five years but again that's not solely down to neighbor and what it does or its clients it's all to do with the regulators working hand in hand with the with the prosecution services and the policing services. So it's it's a job for everybody. But I would love to be able to tell you those things. So how how might you need to step up your own personal game uh, as part of that journey, right? Because you say you're on a bit of a mission to change a an ecosystem, right? You're building a business, but there's a bigger picture here, which is the business has, especially your business, it can't just operate by itself, right? There's this whole ecosystem of regulators and banks and all these other agencies, I'm sure. Uh, What comes to mind as you think about that kind of stretch for you as a leader over the next couple of years is perhaps you want to really multiply your own impact? The things that I need to improve at is that yeah or embrace yeah or just yeah the shifts you're going to need to make because it's as you said as the company grows you need to make shifts right and you've done some of those and so there'll be future shifts yes um, open to you as the business grows and as your ambition grows I think I think on the immediate horizon you know is is looking at a post-pandemic world because 
we've all been working in isolation and I definitely need to be able to go out um, and meet all my clients. You know, we've mm-hmm. got a lot of clients whilst we've been down, you know, in pandemic lockdown and not able to travel. So it'd be great to go and have more face-to-face conversations with them and and really get to the nitty-gritty of, you know, what their problems are, what mm-hmm. problems we cause them, you know, and what problems that we're supposed to be solving that perhaps we're not doing so well at. be great to get all of that feedback, and it would be great also to go and speak to the regulators and mm-hmm. try and tie up those loose ends so that we can bring the regulators and the, and the financial institutions and the software closer together so we're all working more harmoniously. And then as as a manager within the team, you know, I'd like to be able to build out, you know, we are a growing company, you know, we're 200 people today, I, I expect us to grow more. So, you know, internally, you know, we, we, we talk about growing pains, and we have had growing pains, right? And growing pains are things that when you start, you, you think that you can, you know, you've learned the lessons in previous lives, but you appear to get new growing pains. So it's, it's removing those growing pains, which, you know, we are, which we're doing and becoming a better company all round for ourselves, more importantly, for our customers. And that manifests itself in, you know, better products, easier deployment, easier upgrades, and, and most importantly, easier to consume for the end user. Because I mm. think a lot of problems that not just software in our industry, but every bit of software has, you know, is being able to be consumed by the people who are supposed to be using it. And that, that goes for me when I'm even using, you know, my telly at home or whatever it is. It's like, oh, how does this work? It's, you know, things can get a bit complicated. And I think, you know, it's very, very difficult to make something that's complicated easy. You know, mm. I think reciprocally, it's very easy to make something that should be easy complicated. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, the, the secret source for me is being able to, and I use this word democratize quite a lot. So, one of the most complex things we have within what we do is AI and machine learning because it's highly mathematical. And it's about how can you get non-mathematical people to be able to consume and understand that. And if we can democratize that, then that is a big game changer. And that is something that we are constantly looking at and constantly working on. Yeah, no, fascinating. Well, Julian, it's been great to um, to explore these topics with you to get a bit of a deeper dive into the industry and into you know how you're building your business. If people want to find out about a bit more about uh, Napier or get in touch with you, how should they do that? Well, they can um, come onto our website at www.napier.ai, um, and um, or, or they can contact me directly. Actually, if you go through the website, you can contact me directly on the website anyway. But the website's a great place to start. It's got loads of articles and blogs and you know interesting industry insights and it gives you a really good view of who we are and what we do perfect well that's uh, the place to go i'll put that into the show notes um julian it's been a pleasure thank you so much and all the best in your fight to uh get that two percent number up to 92 yeah bigger than two yeah that thank you very much richard it's been a total pleasure amazing thank you take care bye-bye i hope you enjoyed this conversation Now let's talk about you. When you're in top leadership, when you're in the biggest role of your career, who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching, 
and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.